Hey, son, and welcome to Season 3 of the Black Women in Europe podcast. Thanks so much for listening in Season 1 and Season 2. Season 3 will not disappoint. Go to Linktree forward slash Black Women in Europe so we can be social. But thanks and get ready for our next guest. Angela couldn't be with us from Germany. She's got internet issues. We know how that is. But live from the UK, we've got <laughs> Dr. Katie and Powell. I'm oh. so excited you're here. Welcome. Me too. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm very excited like, for this conversation. Oh, me too. And, you know, we pre-talked before. It's been a year. I don't know where the time went. But I just want to say you look adorable. Your t-shirt matches your wall. It's super pink. And she's got Thank these you. super curly, I call them Afro pus, but she said this is, so if your wash day is looking that good, is that because of your products? Tell us about what you have in your, what you're cooking up. What's, what products are you using? What, why is your hair so fabulous? Yeah, sure. Um, my well, I I only use my own products on my hair, so BB Naturals, um, natural hair care, and I have been working on formulating, making products since um, 2014 is when I first started experimenting. Oh my gosh, I, almost 10 years! Yeah, it's 2023. Wow, it? yeah, it's that's so. Oh God, so much has happened in like the last almost. 10 years but yeah yeah that I started in the summer of 2014 messing around and um learning about cosmetic chemistry now I have a whole line of nine hair care products um that uh I use and that I sell on my website and you know other stores and places in the UK and in Switzerland and Germany so okay super exciting now wait a minute bbnaturals.com What's the what's the full URL? Uh, bbnaturalsuk.com. bbnaturalsuk.com. Okay, so run over there immediately while you're listening <laughs> to this and you can be browsing through her nine products at the same time. So summer, take us back to summer 2014. Why were you even looking for solutions for your hair? There wasn't anything that was working for you? Well, I think the hair care, uh, the natural hair care landscape for black and curly hair people was very different almost 10 years ago. And I think there it was more popping in the States, but I moved to the UK in 2011. And so up until that point in 2014, what, um, because there just wasn't a lot over here in this country. And because I didn't live in London, I live in Birmingham, I had even less access to things. Mm. So... Um, what I did was I used to go home every year to Washington, D.C., um, where I lived for a very long time. Woo -woo. <laughs> and I used to fill up my suitcase and oh, with like hair products. Yeah. And you had one suitcase. You came with an empty suitcase just that's right. to bring stuff that's right. that's right. That's right. And that's I what I that. was doing. Yeah. So that's what I was doing. Um, but, you know, um, I was also deep into my... Um, my product junkie phase at that time, because I was really into um, natural hair on YouTube and the blogs that existed um, before the whole influencer culture really exploded the way it has. Um, but yeah, so the, the point was that I was using a lot of things, but I was not finding the right conditioner to um, solve my um the tangles in my hair, because my hair gets very tangle, tangly. I have high porosity hair, so the strands tend to really kind of thick to each other. And they get knotted up. 
Um, and I, I was trying to find, you know, understand my hair at the time. And as I was watching YouTube, I saw this girl make a conditioner in the microwave, like a very simple conditioner. And I don't blew your mind. Like, yeah, it blew my mind because <laughs> I, I don't want people out there thinking I'm talking about her mixing up bananas and like avocados and oats, <laughs> things like that. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about using raw cosmetic ingredients that she bought and I didn't know that you could do that as yeah. you know a, an individual but clearly could and it was very simple she said so she showed the very basics and so of course I went and researched I found like a um cos uh cosmetics like um chemistry blog I started learning oh, wow. learning how to formulate I start keeping a notebook and experimenting I thought well maybe I could just create the thing that I need for my hair mm -hmm. and so that's what started the whole thing and eventually I got it right and I perfected that years later and became something that's in our lineup called avocado um, nourishing smoothie uh, detangling conditioner which wow. I use every week except for when I use our deep conditioner and yeah I don't I, I love my wash days it's not a problem for me I'm in and out of the shower and my hair is decently long when stretched, just like down to my bra strap. Like That's I'm out long. in like 40 minutes, you know? And especially if I do like a, a wash and go, like I'm out, <laughs> it's fine. Because wash day used to be a thing before. Yeah, well, because I would spend so much time detangling my hair. I remember being in grad school back in the States. And um, at that time I was really, really ignorant about uh, curly hair as I think a lot of people were a lot of black people were because if you grew up in a house where your mom or your grandmother were at pains to like change their hair and they didn't know about their hair what is it that they had to teach you about yours I know we were press and curl I was under the press right. and curl and then the relaxer right. generation yeah my mom relaxed my hair when I was seven years old because she didn't want to deal with it yeah, so <laughs> that's early, but you know what? I can understand her frustration and but wow. Okay. So yeah, I it used to take me two hours to detangle. So oh, I wanted to get away from that. For that. Yeah, she, <laughs> she didn't have time for that. Okay, so so it wasn't until you were grad school when you were like, mm. but then when you got to Birmingham, you got desperate because you said this is a, this I can't sustain suitcases back once a year or like what yeah what? It, it wasn't gonna it just wasn't gonna be feasible it's like okay well if I bought stuff when I was in the states and I come back here and I try them all and perhaps not all of them work for me what am I gonna do wait another year to go like experiment I have to you know I have to figure yeah. something out um yeah. and the uh the retail side for black hair care wasn't developing fast enough for me over here, yeah. or at the yeah. very least, I didn't know about like the cottage industries yeah. that existed. And if they did, they were more so like selling black soap shampoo and, you know, shea butter mixes, all yeah. great. But I was looking for sort of more sophisticated like formulation. Um, so yeah, it just started with me trying to, you know, cut my detangling and wash day time in half. And when mm -hmm. I eventually made a conditioner that worked, I was very impressed with myself, <laughs> very satisfied. And I thought, oh my God, I did this thing. And so then I thought about, I made a list of other hair and skincare mm -hmm. um, problems that I had, challenges. 
um, a fantasy list. And then I set about trying to formulate and create solutions for all of them. And that became like the impetus of the brand, which was just, you know, solutions oriented products not things that were focused on the latest like niche, you know, mm. um, extracts that you can ha- add to the same base formula. What have you seen come and go? Cause you say that and it reminds me, remember when Moroccan Argon, Moroccan oil yes. was everywhere. I think that was Argon. Oil. Yeah. Moroccan um, Argon. And then I remember there was like a big thing with um, rice water and um, creating like products that had like rice water and that would be like sustainable in terms of um, not growing fungi and mold because that could be very dangerous people leaving that out and um, and people not understanding how fermentation works Mm -hmm. and then uh, I feel like in the last couple of years, what's been happening is um, clove oil and clove oh, essence wow. for like growing hair or, you know, sort of like making hair shiny. That's been um, sort of one of the the big ones. So these trends, like they come and go um, to various uh, levels, but there's no like miracle ingredient. A lot of hair is about discipline and about routine. Um and also the way that we handle it. It's partly genetics, but a lot of it is really just about your practices and your approach to taking care of your hair. And I just wanted to to make things that spoke to that, not to the trend stuff. Now, when when did you figure that out, that it's how you treat your hair, the practices um, that are the most important? Was it a lot of, because I know I have done things to my hair and you know, it's growing because when you had that relaxer, what you got to get the touch up, Mm -hmm. you're like, it never, it never goes past a certain length. And I have seen myself not do a good job of detangling and actually pull out. I mean, I've pulled my hair out before in the, you know, I don't know if I was impatient. Oh, have I. (laughs) Yeah. So I, um, I think I learned, you know, part of uh, digesting a lot of um, hair care related content and um, and I was careful about people that I followed who were really giving, you know, good information and not necessarily trying to hop on the latest trend. Mm-hmm. But I think what really taught me is that once I became very busy and mm-hmm. had less time to devote to messing around with my hair and I got into a weekly routine of okay a weekly or every 10 day routine of washing my hair either putting it on um in twists and you know wearing it in a in a a twist out or you know whatever it is that I did and I wasn't messing with it too much just doing the same thing and moving on with my life because I just didn't have the time (laughs) it can take over yeah not that my hair was just like growing like crazy um I've never really had a problem with my hair growing, but what I used to have a problem with is breakage. And I would find like short pieces in the middle of my head, you know, around my crown and those kinds of things. And so I started to understand that, oh, you know, if I'm not wearing a snatched back ponytail all the time, Mm -hmm. I can avoid sort of that sort of manual, um, what is the word I'm looking for? Um, Manual sort of like alopecia that can Mm. occur around the edges 
Um, and just having sleeping on a silk pillow uh, case mm. at night, which is also very beneficial for your skin mm. rather than a cotton one and keeping it very simple and having a dedicated routine. I have not had issues with breakage the way I did when I was taking two hours to detangle my hair. Wow. So <laughs> if we could summarize, so you weren't messing around. So you, the, the less you were messing around with your hair, mm-hmm. the not wearing, um, I don't want to say extreme, but maybe too tight or hairstyles that can actually cause balding around your hairline. That's what alopecia yes. is, right? Actual yes. balding. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And doing things like sleeping on a silk pillowcase to stop friction right? Um, and having a routine, those yes. really, you can start seeing the difference from, from maybe breakage or whatever. Now, why did you, all of a sudden you had so less, you had less time. You said you didn't have two hours to mess with your hair on wash day. What yes. Um, well, the 2014 is also the year I decided that I was going to pursue a PhD so I um, love smart. Yay. <laughs> Yay. PhD in which subject? Uh, in sociology, but that's, I ended up in sociology, but really it um, sort of was a multidisciplinary one because there's a lot of media studies in there and fan studies mm-hmm. as well um, as uh, ethnography um, involved in um, the, the PhD, the dissertation that I um, did, but I, in 2014, I was, um, I was working two different jobs, uh, no, technically three, mm. and um, also pursuing a PhD part-time, and wow. it was extremely hard, and I didn't really know what I was doing, um, and mm. because I also had to pay for it myself uh, at the time, so I was very stressed out, and I just, I didn't have a lot of time. I started 2015 full-time. I uh, applied and earned a bursary. Um, which is basically like a PhD fellowship at, thank you, Fantastic. at another university thank you, the yeah. next year. And Fantastic. yeah, so, you know, I was doing that and then I was, I started, you know, like se- leading seminars. So yeah, I, I just, I just got busy. And definitely by 2017, when I started this business and was running it and still doing my PhD, mm-hmm. I definitely didn't have time. <laughs> Did you ever think of cutting it all off or just, you were like, no, I don't have to be that extreme. I can figure it out. Well, the thing is that when I moved to this country in 2010, I think I said 2011 earlier, but it was 2010. I cut all of my hair off that January. Yeah, I did the big chop in 2010. Um, And so my hair was, I was growing it for a long time and I would get trims here and there, but I have cut my hair sort of like fairly short, Mm -hmm. um, twice in the last like four years. So, uh, and I'm probably going to do it this summer. Um, again, um, you have so much hair on that head right now. (laughs) Wow. Okay. So why may you do it again? I mean, why not? It's just, it's a, it's a, um, why do people do the big chop? Because your hair is not damaged. I know that some people do it because their hair is damaged. Or they yeah, want to so relax her out. Yeah. For me, oh, cool. uh, so, so my hair is like really sort of like 
ridiculous and dry right now, but it seems sort of like right now it's oh, cool. yeah, that's a lot of hair. Okay, <laughs> yeah, below the bra line. That's yeah, well, wrong. yeah, below the bra line, and so mm-hmm. I'm like, eh, I don't mind cutting it um it off because man, is it extra extra easy on wash day when it's shorter? <laughs> I love it. Um, but anyway, I cut it off in 2010 because. Um, in 2005, when I um, graduated with my master's degree and moved back to Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. I went to the University of Wisconsin at Madison for my master's degree. So I moved back mm-hmm. to D.C. and I just had this idea, you know, it's a very toxic idea, but it's also reflective of the world that we were living in, especially as Black women, mm-hmm. that to be professional, I needed to get a relaxer. I knew. Oh, in the, oh, I have straight hair, so I went my back blood to boil. Because yeah. I was natural for ten years. Um, at high school, I cut my hair off. Um, I got the big chop because I was curious about my texture. Yeah. And um, so then in yeah, so yeah, I had relaxed hair for about five years, and then in two thousand nine, in the summer, we were um kind of on holiday here in the UK mm-hmm. and I saw a Matalan um, billboard and there was a woman on it who had um, sort of like curly hair and I just don't know just something in me I saw her and I thought mm, I miss my hair and so after that to you. I stopped it just, it just spoke to me and I stopped getting relaxers and I grew it out from July um, 2009 and then I cut it off in uh, January of 2010 and it's still the haircut that I got you know very very short but there were still like little pieces of relaxed ends on it even though I cut it wow. you know sort of like short so I still had to grow that out and keep mm-hmm. cutting it off mm-hmm. um, but yeah so so that's why um, I cut it back then it's because I thought yeah I want to go back to um, to my hair uh, I'm done you know with this I didn't have damage from the relaxer, yeah. you know, or anything like that. But I just thought, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> and you know what? Do you think that that helped your career having the, the relaxed hair? I mean, when you look back on it, could you have done then what you, if you look like now? I think that not in the, not in the beginning, I don't think it had any impact because I went back to the same institution, different role. But I went mm-hmm. back to the same institution that mm-hmm. I worked for before the master's degree. Of course, I got a different role, pay bump, all of that business. But they already knew me and they had known me with yeah. curly hair before. Right. Um, and I think it was just I had absorbed from society and messages that what it meant to be a grown and professional woman, which is what I wanted to come across as after my master's degree, especially since I was going back to the same institution, I wanted them to see me in a different way. And I wanted them to respect me in a different way. And I thought that that was going to be, you know, sort of a part of that. Um, And when I had a relaxer, I did get my hair cut into a very cute bob, which seems to be coming mm-hmm. back right now. And I, and I, and I was really feeling myself eventually. Uh, but when I left, when I left that place, um, after a few different positions, I kind of like started again and I wanted to change, um, fields. There was one organization that I interviewed for, and it was for like a marketing position in like a housing organization. Mm-hmm. And I do think the HR person and the manager who hired me 
I do think that hair made a difference to mm. them. That mm. sleep bob. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the truth. I mean, and it's so refreshing to be able to be honest about it, but also see how we've come now. Now there's laws, right? The yeah. Yeah. Act. The Crown Act. Yeah. Is that the same in the UK? Will braids or natural hair hold you back or held women back in the UK? And do they? Absolutely. And certain, and so we do not have a protective act. I do okay. see that France is now being urged to adopt something very similar okay. to the Crown Act. There are um, activists who are working on something like that. There are activists who are working on that here. And mm -hmm. um, I think the conservative government has been resistant to having uh, a national law, but we have organizations that work on this from a school level up because it's been the case in the UK that there that pupils have been um, dismissed from school or they have been reprimanded because they they're wearing like um, cornrows or they're wearing their afros out does that even seem you traumatizing children for being who they are isn't that bizarre it's so bizarre. when you think about it it's, it's it's extremely bizarre uh to me because and and it ugh, white supremacy is so um ingrained that i think people don't even they don't think about it in that way because mm -hmm. so much of what it means to be white has been about um, making sure that your environment, that you're comfortable in your environment and that there isn't anything that offends you or causes you displeasure. Um, and Black people's existence, behavior, even presentation has often come under that um, sense of control mm. um, that, mm -hmm. you know, white people often command. And I think on a it's so cellular at this point and ingrained mm -hmm. that they're just not even conscious of when they create these rules and these laws and they say, well, you can't have this kind of hair and that kind of hair. And it's like the hair that is a biological- Out of my head. I know, growing out of my head. Like, <laughs> like from my body that I literally have nothing to do with, but you're demanding that I have to like manipulate or add some kind of chemical for what, for your comfort? Now women are getting ovarian <laughs> cancer. Yeah, women are getting ovarian cancer, they say from- yeah years are relaxing um yeah you, well one thing about your products is it empowers women to embrace whatever curl they have whatever texture they have and using products that are health that aren't going to harm you yes exactly so where do you source your products from like um i don't know i know i don't know for example the avocado that you use <laughs> is there a, like a special or great place to get avocados or any avocado would do so um, no actual avocados in it. So it's more the avocado oil, oil. that we're okay. getting. So, right. So the oil that's being extracted from like the, the, um, the outer sort of like shell of the avocado. Uh, and the seed. avocado oil on the table. Oh, there you go. <laughs> it's, a, it's a wonderful oil with a vitamin A, C, D, E in it. Um, you know, rice bran is also very rich. Rice bran oil is also very rich in vitamin um, E um, uh, oils. But that, um, I mainly buy from UK suppliers who are sourcing that from 
um, elsewhere. So they're sourcing that from like other countries. Um, I do get my Shia butter directly from Ghana and it mm. is raw. And I get that through a black distributor who mm. um, like oversees sort of the, the making of that there. So mm. wherever, uh, and yeah, and that distributor is in the UK. So wherever mm. I can support, I am supporting other businesses and other um the larger kind of like cosmetic economy Fantastic. in the in the UK, um, even though some of them are importing from elsewhere because you know we don't grow. Well, you have to, yeah. You have to. So it's an ecosystem. So you know everybody now in the UK that's in this biz that you could source from potentially. A lot of people, yeah, 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 yeah. definitely, yeah. So it, it's an ecosystem. And did Brexit affect those? people in your ecosystem yeah absolutely one of the the suppliers that um, I use in fact they were the very first supplier that um, I used back when I was just doing this as a hobby and trying yeah. to get small amounts of um, ingredients because they would you could get things from them for as little as like 100 grams of an ingredient oh, wow which is essential when you're um, experimenting and and, and formulating yeah. But they, after Brexit, they tried to change, they had to try to change their business plan. And at first they tried to accommodate because they were shipping a lot of things to European customers um, as well. Um, mm -hmm. And they also had like a pretty healthy um, fragrance creation, mm -hmm. fragrance oil creation business, which, uh, you know, some of our fragrances we sourced from there because they're very high quality mm -hmm. Um and, um, you know, I wasn't having like reactions for myself or customers when I used them in our products, mm -hmm. but they had to stop their raw ingredient trading business wow. after Brexit. Uh, they had to shut that down. Um, I think it was last year, officially early last year that they made the decision to officially pivot away from the raw ingredient business and focus solely on their fragrance oil creation wow. um, business because they had already laid off employees and all yeah. of that because it, it the the margins were not there anymore with what they were having to pay yeah. to get the products into um, the UK or what they were having to pay in like duty in yeah. order to um, ship products there. So it was quite a mess. Um, and, you know, I'm still feeling the effects um, mm. of that uh, now. It limited the business that we had with European customers. So I've had to try to, like, increase the wholesale business with um, European retailers in order to ship things um, there because, you know, customers can't afford to, like, some of these countries are charging really high duties, like, Spain is especially mm. egregious. Mm. Um, I've had customers order from me who were ordering before Brexit and then after Brexit, they've gotten in touch to say, I have to, had to reject this um, at the border because they were trying to charge me 60 euros wow. um, duty on something that costs 12 pounds. Wow. <laughs> you know, it, and so it became untenable. So there've been all kinds of uh, effects um, on um, businesses in the UK. And I have seen at least, and I don't know if we can fully attribute it to Brexit, but mm -hmm. just yesterday I saw like the third or maybe the fourth 
black owned, female owned mm. business in the UK deciding to shut up shop because oh, no. it has become too stressful, too difficult, or it's just like not working anymore. And it's very sad. Um, and this government doesn't seem very interested in helping to um, ameliorate the effects on these kind of like smaller businesses. And they for damn sure don't really care about the black ones. Well, you know, I was wondering if there was maybe another side of that, whereas the products, maybe the products for us that were coming from other places in Europe, that got too expensive to to bring in. And, and there's been a bigger focus on made in the UK, what is made in Great Britain products or uh, has there been a focus shift? I, I, I don't think that there has been as much of that focus, right? So that sort of like nationalistic focus through um, production, that has not been, that has not been an effect of this, not as far as I have witnessed. It's been more of the deleterious effects um, Mm -hmm. of it in terms of, I think what people have realized is how interdependent and how much a part of Britain and uh, how much a part of the economy um, with Europe, uh, Britain had. And I think that they're seeing now how damaging all that rhetoric was and what the actual facts were. Um, And so I I think the effects of businesses closing down or laying Mm. off workers or having to like shift um, business plans, that that part is sort of like still going on. any sort of like nationalistic response in the manufacturing mm. sector really has not emerged clearly yet. Not yet, because I, I just wondered how, because I know I bought something small from the UK. I can't remember what it was and I can't remember why I didn't get it here. And the same thing I had to pay, dude, it was like, it was such a small thing, four or $5, some electric thing I couldn't get here. Mm-hmm. And it was like $12 for, yeah. And I thought, oh, I completely because I think I, you know, a retailer, I, I completely forgot about Brexit. And I was like, yeah, this isn't sustainable. That's the last time I did that. <laughs> right. um, because that, you just can't. So sometimes if I can't get something here, you can get it from Germany because prices in Sweden can be ridiculous. And I can't remember what it was, something I wanted fast. And it was super cheap in the UK, even with the exchange rate. But yeah, they got me on the back end of it. Um, so you've shifted a little bit from, you still have your loyal retail customers, mm-hmm. but you've shifted to, to wholesale. How is that going for you? Because I you mentioned Switzerland and Germany. Are those wholesale customers? Yeah, so we we have um, we have some online retailers there in uh, Switzerland and in Germany, and also in Romania, which uh, we had the Romanian people before. The Switzerland one is new. And we are um, in conversation with a distributor in um, the Netherlands to see if, you know, we can work with them to sort of get more um, retail outlets uh, in Europe. And I, because I just think that that's going to be the best way to do it. And um, we're in talks with potentially um, a distributor in Vietnam because apparently their beauty sector is doing really well where it's harder for other places like say um, Europe um, 
and I mean, it's still booming in America, but you Asian know, sector for beauty. Yeah, no, yeah, is the thing. Yeah, yeah, and um, that the that Vietnam market apparently is like really doing well, and they are trying to get more um brands, and so they're looking at brands in Europe, and so I've been talking with them. So we'll see how that goes. Um, but yeah, we're just sort of like in talks right now. So when, as far as if I'm in the UK, where can I find you on the shelf or do I order directly from you on the? People can um, order directly from us. We are also in the Sephora and Superdrug Marketplace <gasps> online. We're not Fantastic. on their shelves yet, but we'll see. But, you know, it's just, it makes it easier for people if they're going on there to buy other things and they can exactly. also add that to their cart and it's not going to yeah. cost them an arm and a leg to for the um, shipping. Um, and we're in um, two stores in London and Bristol. I still have not found okay. a brick and mortar store in Birmingham of all places um, for in our products. So, backyard. In our own backyard, which we have a pretty good customer base in Birmingham. So I feel like it would be really useful um, for, for that to, to happen. Um, so I am still waiting on that. Now doing different things, have you done any pop-ups since, I don't want to say COVID is over because somebody just told me the other day someone died. <laughs> she was taking care of her cousin. Wow. And then I know, and then caught it. I know. And you're like, these aren't old people, you know, no. these, these um, have you done any pop-up things? Because I know Britain can be very black when it comes to like festivals mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. things like that. Do you do things like that? Yeah, I do. I do do pop ups. Um, I haven't done any this year yet, but I do have one that I'm doing um, in June and it's a pride related pop up um, in London. Um, and there's an event that I'm going to miss doing um, because of traveling, mm -hmm. but it, it's coming back for the first time since COVID and it's called Return to Your Roots. And it's actually a two day mm -hmm. festival of sort of like all things like um, black, uh, black owned. So whatever business that you're in, whether it's health or clothing or beauty or selling funeral services, whatever it is, it's okay. just like a big festival, you know, um, for that with like workshops and like retail opportunities. Oh, yeah. And I know the woman that runs it. In fact, she um, inspired or helped um, create one of our products called um, Lock It In Moisture Spray. Because okay, let's talk more about your product. So what is that now? Lock It In Moisture Spray. Yeah, but um, but yeah, if anybody is, uh, I don't know when this will come out, but yeah, Return to Your Roots um, Festival, the 17th and 18th of that um, June. I'm yeah, it's, food. No, it's great. And food as well is there. It's like, it's amazing. Um, a, a lot of uh, Caribbean infused like culture, you know, specifically, because um, you know there's West African cultures and East African cultural influences in Britain, but this one is very much informed by the Caribbean that mm -hmm. Turn to Your Roots Festival. Um, but yeah, so uh, Kembe, the name of the woman, uh, I think back in like maybe 2018, um, she actually I did one of my first pop-ups was something that she organized back in the day. And so I got to know her that way mm -hmm. and she got to know my products. And she asked me if I had anything that she could spray on her, on the um, roots or the um, locks of clients. 
that she has because she uh, she has her own. She's a loctician. She's a loctician. She has her own um, um, salon. And so I said, well, no, I don't. But ideally, what would you be looking for it to do? At, at that time, she was importing some things from the U.S. and it was becoming um, unsustainable for yeah. her, you know, selling them to her customers. So yeah. she showed me, talked to me about the things that she liked about certain products and what she didn't like. And I just got to working on it. Um, yeah. And eventually, yeah, we came up with something that's called... Um, Lock it in uh, moisturizing spray, and it is for to relieve like itchiness and soothe dry um, scalp, which is uh, an issue not just for people with locks and sister locks, but people who wear braids, especially people who wear braids under their wigs, mm. um, to just help with scalp care. And you can spray on whether you have loose hair or you have locks um, as well. Um, so yeah, so that's something that I created with her, um, because, uh, at her urging, it wasn't something that I'd originally thought about, but she made me think about it. Is her picture going to be on the bottle? Be- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably not. What do your products look like? So, um, oh, um, I actually have the spray here that, um, I just mentioned. So this is after our rebrand. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. So this is what the old branding looks like. Okay, yellow label. And so, with, um, and so now all the products have like more sort of like very distinct. That's the avocado smoothie, distinct okay. kind of um, lettering uh, branding, right? Yeah. So this is like one of our um, our, our lotions very for eczema. Cute. Yeah, mm-hmm. and now we have also these um, refillable packages that are in. Um, <gasps> like recyclable material so we're using 85 percent less plastic i thought that was a bag uh, of flax seeds or something yeah. over there that's got liquid no. product in there that oh. has, yeah so um right now we're using them for our cream based uh products um and i think once we don't have the um the larger plastic bottle once we've sold all the larger plastic bottles of like shampoo and um, conditioners will switch those to that because if the whole point is being environmentally friendly, it's wasteful to sort of like, you know, do away with those bottles and bring those in. It's like, no, well, you use what you have, yeah, recycle you those, have. and then mm-hmm. you start on, you know, the the next bunch. So I don't want to create additional waste. Um, but yeah, all of the refill packs will be moving to that. And right now, uh, three of our, you know, um, very popular products, including our gel, um, is available in that, those refill packages. <laughs> Fantastic. Now, how did, um, how do you do, who helps you develop your packaging? Because you do, you develop the products, you get inspired yeah. by customers' needs, people's needs. Yes. Who helps you, who designs the packaging? I work with a really wonderful um, boutique firm called, um, why am I forgetting their name? I see technically their name is right here on the bottom. Right. Um, Align Design <laughs> uh, Company. And they were uh, the founder named Nancy. I worked with her. And it was really great because um, she really got my vision. I told her I wanted to fuse Art Deco and Art Nouveau with West African sort of like prints and That's what that um, shapes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I said, yeah, I was like, I want you to, uh, I want you to find a way to 
fuse those two things for me because I want it to be elegant, but also fun. I want it to call back to, um, to, you know, to um, African, uh, West African cultures. But I also, I don't like this thing where it's fine for some people and it's, it's great. And I really need no shade with this, but I don't think that everything that is black or that is African inspired needs to always look the same or be. We don't need an Afro pick on everything. We don't need an Afro pick on everything or a literal Afro Mm -hmm. or literal, like, um, you know, sort of, uh, um, wax, uh, fabric, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we could take inspiration and interpolation um, from that. And I also don't think the term black has to be in the name either for it to be black or mm-hmm. like signal black. And it doesn't mean that you're trying to hide anything. No, but I know uh, what you mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so I, I wanted it to, I wanted it to reflect my own sensibilities, but in a way that was, um, creatively unachievable by just me <laughs> and so yeah. that, you knew uh, your limitations and you brought I know my well. limitations yeah but I, yeah I'm, I'm very clear about how I want something to feel and um the aesthetics of it and so I was just really happy that um I was in touch with people that could make that happen for me yeah yeah okay so the very first so you have not can you go through the nine products that you have Sure. Up to nine. That's so exciting. <laughs> we have um, the uh, moisture silk um, nettle shampoo, and we have the avocado smoothie uh, detangling conditioner. We have the leave me be leave in conditioner. <laughs> um, the coconut cream um, deep conditioning hair mask. We have a knot-free detangling spray. So that's N-K-N-O-T um, free. Yeah, I can lock it in. The lock it in, you know, scalp moisturizing spray. The um, curl, please, curling and twisting custard. The hair to balm, um, wax-free uh, it's like a hair grease replacement, you know, petroleum mm. free um, mm-hmm. whipped butter. And Ooh. then we have the Curl Crush Flaxseed and Marshmallow Root Gel. <laughs> okay. Where is, okay, wow. Where is the shea butter coming in, in, in that you get from Ghana in any of this? The shea butter. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah, Ghana. Okay. So the shea butter is a big part of the hair to balm, which is um, the hair to balm and the curl crush gel are consistently like vie for top spots. So like mm. back and forth between um, there. I think they're two of our, our most unique products. Mm. So there's a lot of shea butter in there. There's shea butter in the, um, the coconut cream um, mm. deep conditioning hair mask. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there is uh, shea butter in uh, a lot of our soaps so we make oh um, now talk about the body soap. stuff so that oh my goodness so you have nine products alone in the hair care line. in the hair care product and then we have soaps um Check as it. well <laughs> what yeah so um we, we make um handmade vegan soaps because soaps were the first thing that i learned how to make way back when i was at university in undergrad really? that's when i first started making things yeah um, 
I had very dry skin that would feel like it was cracking. And I, um, mm. after I got out of the shower, even though I would put on lotion and, uh, I did some research and found out that it may be the cause of the soap that I was using, that mm. I was using something more like a detergent. Detergent it was strip, as I say, it was yeah, stripping, stripping out all your moisture. So I read about, um, sort of how handmade soaps sort of like retain their natural glycerin because the reason why. Um, products of some products are so stripping is because manufacturers when they're making them they will strip the natural glycerin that um, is a part of the process because the glycerin itself is really valuable so but when you make natural naturally made soap it retains its glycerin as part of the soap making process um, and helps to nourish the skin and you can also um, calculate in um, its like refatting properties, which just means that extra moisture that's going to lend to the soap. So I learned about all that and I started, you know, making soap just for myself and like for my friends. Uh <laughs> Remind me, you could be a cartoon character. Um, but I mean this in a good way, like Nickelodeon. Um, I could see you with glasses and curly hair and a little white coat. You know, I do wear glasses. Do you? And I, I do. I still have them on now. <laughs> I can see you, you know, a little lab coat mixing things over, like paying it. So, were you paying attention in science class or this? Like, how do you? I know you're smart, you're a PhD, you know how to read, you know how to research, but there has got to be some, um, I can think of the word Swedish, come scap, some knowledge, something that was inherent in you, like formula making, you understand chemistry. Like, what? Well, is here's the thing. I didn't pay that much attention in <laughs> chemistry. And it was because I was saying this to people like not too long ago that I wish my chemistry teacher, um, like what if they, some of the experiments that they did was about making something practical, like yeah. showing how to make like a, a, a bot, like a simple body butter or a simple shampoo, you know, conditioner. Shampoo is more complicated than conditioner, you know, to make. And it, I think, if you showed kids like what was practical in their lives, not just things cool, like, oh, we'll make slime. Volcano. That's that's great. And a volcano. <laughs> what am I going to have need for that? Like for what? You know what I mean? But to understand the things that they actually put in their bodies or talk about how much chemistry is an essential part of baking. I also love baking. I love fermentation. Yeah. And that's because I love that scientific part of it. But I didn't know that growing up. And it was only as an adult when I got into this world that, I connected the fact that I have loved watching how things are made since those little vignettes in Sesame Street when I was young. And I didn't understand that that's what I yeah. found fascinating yeah. about it, the way things came together. Yeah. Um, and so perhaps if I was more in touch with that or knew that chemistry was a part of that, that I yeah. could have had a different career or you know, taken a different yeah. path um you know to to get here maybe I would have been a formulator for you know, sociology is fascinating no. <laughs> sociology is fascinating but I love that too you know I became a uh, study anthropology instead and in, um in undergrad um but I I love both things so anthropology is fascinating and you said something about ethnography my mother's an ethnomusicologist so here's oh. a Here's the thing with you you could have been whatever you are whatever you are everything you know that um you know, you put your mind to, but you yeah. could have been, you could have been any of that or all of that and had several different 
you know, I don't know. Could you have been an astrophysicist for 10 years? <laughs> okay, forget that. My skin's dry. I need some soap. Forget that. Now I'm going to, you know, do anthropology. So you're, you're a perfect example of um, how curiosity and need mm-hmm. combined can create yeah. fantastic things. Now, where are your things made? Like, not in your basement, not in your backyard. Like literally, where are your products manufactured? Because you started so, experimenting in your kitchen if you were doing microwave stuff. Right? Well, I start tech. What mm, technically, I started experimenting in my garage, which mm. I eventually turned into a little studio for mm. myself uh, with my wife's support and Yay. also a little bit of annoyance because it meant we had to find. We had to move things out of there <laughs> um, and find other space because I was taking it over. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, we live in an end property. So we have a little bit more room mm. um, there than the the other people in terms of the garage. And it, it mm-hmm. you know, it's got electricity in there. It has plumbing, a sink and all that. Wow. So I was able to like create a, a, the space that I needed. Wait there. a minute. When you bought the house and moved in, the garage had a, a, a running water? Oh, yeah, because the previous owners, they had the, um, you know, sort of like the washing machine there. They had like a a sink and um, cabinets uh, in there. So it was was made for you. You knew you saw this. (laughs) Your wife didn't know yet, but you were like, this is going to be mine one day. I had no thought about back in 2012 when we, uh, you know, moved in there, but it really worked out. Yeah. So I started there. Some mm-hmm. of our products are still made in the, the studio that I turned it into, but um, mo- most of our hair care uh, products um, are manufactured by a, um, a, you know, sort of like cosmetics manufacturer mm-hmm. down in where, where are they? It, it's in the Southern part of mm-hmm. um, England. I can't remember the exact place now, mm-hmm. but yeah. So yeah, they produce our formulas for us. Yeah. So you give them the chemical C2O, like the chemical comp- composition. How does that work? Mm-hmm. Well, okay. so you write it as like a recipe with like percentages and the Latin names of the raw ingredients. Mm-hmm. And then they then take your recipe and they try to create it and then they send it back to you for testing to make sure that is this how it is when you make it Mm -hmm. and if there are any adjustments that they um need to make sometimes i've had to um i've had to we've had to make adjustments because um for instance with our gel i was producing the um the flaxseed mix myself buying mm-hmm. raw flax seeds and then making that sort of like extract whereas mm-hmm. like buying the extract in is actually more expensive it's more time consuming on my end but it was cheaper for me to make it myself mm-hmm. so we had to change things a little bit in order to accommodate sort of like a professionally made extract um to keep the efficacy and all of the promises of the gel the same than when i was um, making it myself so it's mm-hmm. a back and forth uh with them they do tests and they send it to to for you to evaluate on like texture on um mm-hmm. smell on efficacy mm-hmm. uh viscosity all of those things um before it gets approved and then 
um, you're able to like sign off on manufacturing. Um, and just so people know, like it's a very long process. So sometimes <laughs> you start, if you're working from scratch on something, on a formula between you starting with them and it coming out as manufactured, a thing that they send back to you, sometimes depending can be a year because wow. there are, you have, if you hit a formula the first time, let's just say that takes you like two months, right? Mm -hmm. And then you will have, there are lead times for ordering raw ingredients mm -hmm. from a manufacturer and depending on where they're coming from and the um, raw ingredient manufacturers, you can be six up to even 12 weeks before they can get the ingredient in. Wow. Um, and then start to, then they have to schedule in the production date. Mm. And then that's if everything goes right. Mm. We had recently one of our products where we had to tweak some of the ingredients. They went to manufacture it when they did it on a, um, a larger yeah. scale. Mm -hmm. It completely fell apart than when they made the samples of it. And so we had to go back to the drawing board and mm. think about, well, how can we change this for it to like, you know, work? It's like a detective. You have to be a detective yeah. and figure out what it was. They yeah. were, and, and now how, so it's a recipe. That's the term. Is it copyrighted? How are, how are your formulations protected? Well, yeah. Well, that's your intellectual. Copy, that is intellectual property. Yeah. yeah. It should be copyrighted. So when a, if a, if you hire a manufacturer to um, make a recipe for you and you pay for the development, you have to pay for the development of it, right? So that's their time in creating it, the back and forth samples. But if you want to own it, you then have to pay them sometimes double, two and a half times what you paid for the development of it. You got to pay them again to like buy that, that recipe like mm. off of them. Um, but yeah, you can get um, your formulas um, copyrighted um, so that no one else is like producing that exact same. Just in a different bottle, you know, right. whatever. Um, <laughs> and I don't know, there would be a nightmare to think that that would happen. Um, but I'm sure it's happened to somebody somewhere. Yeah, but I mean, you know, the ingredients, if you're a savvy person and you understand reading the ingredients on the back of a bottle and you know how those things combine, you can create something not too far off. Um, you're not gonna get it exact. And a lot of products, there are, every conditioner that exists has the same base products. Some things know, are just yeah. the base ingredients and then what the yeah. different, different dif <laughs> differentiates. <laughs> is where that's where your IP comes in too. Yes. And something called formulation, right? So that is not just having a recipe that works, but it is the specific percentages of mm. ingredients and how they combine because you can have three companies with a conditioner that has the same, let's say seven top ingredients in common but the effect that they have on someone's hair is just going to be different. And their hair is just going to prefer one formulation to another. And it may be because, oh, well, the eighth ingredient is uh, macadamia nut oil instead of passion fruit oil. And mm -hmm. that was the thing in combination that made the difference for their hair, which is why we can have so many different hair care lines, you know, mm -hmm. out here 
and people are buying things from multiple lines and it's because of the way formulation works mm-hmm. it's just that sweet spot of how the specific percentages of different ingredients combine to produce um, a certain sort of like effect on the hair now i think i heard rumor i'm going to ask you Oh gosh, I'm looking, we're running out of time, but now I don't know. Hopefully you have some more time. Oh wow, yeah. No, I, um, I budgeted up until four. Perfect. Um, okay. So I can <laughs> um okay. Okay, four your time, because I'm looking at four my time. I forget. Oh yeah, sorry. Four my time. No, perfect. Okay. Um I know there's um and I know you know there's a sister who had a lot of success with the product, a hair care line product, and then she sold it to a major, major, major player. Yes. <laughs> is that um, something that you would be happy to do? Um, how do you feel about that? I mean, I can, is it because some people are like, oh, it's not going to be the same thing. It's not going to be the same product or um, how do you feel about that? Is that something you would love to be bought out by a big major player or is it important to you that you, it's a, um, small owned business or can it be a big small owned business or you know what I mean yeah I mean it could be a a big small owned business I think so you asked me if I would be happy to do it I will say that I would not be happy to do it would you know to to um sell my business to like a big um you know sort of like white owned multinational Mm. I would not be happy to do it if I had exhausted other options, would I do it? Yeah, I would be open to doing that depending on the circumstances mm-hmm. and the agreements and contracts and stipulations in place. Mm-hmm. So it's all, it depends. My preference would be that another black owned company would say, um, uh, absorb us or we would sell to them and then they would own the IP and they could expand their brand that way by like bringing, you know, um, our already proven products um, into their folds um, mm-hmm. and rebrand them as theirs or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would be my preference. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I think it's important to note, um, I recently read an article about kind of some mess and downfall that went on with um, Grassfield's uh, um, clothing company. Oh, and I love their silk African pants, girl. They're... Right. Well, they are not owned by those sisters anymore. Since when? So, new tea that's dropping for you. Um, I recently read, it's by a, a black phone writer did an investigation and a publication here called um, Black Ballads. And um, it turns, they were shutting down last year in 2022 in January. I remember getting the email because I subscribe. I have several items of clothing from them, dresses, pair of pants that I absolutely adore. Oh, I know. Great. Um, And it said that they were shutting down because one of the sisters' health was compromised and that things were getting too hard. And I was very sad about it, but it's like, you know, I understood, especially as an entrepreneur, how exhausting like this business can be and I wasn't even at their level and Mm -hmm. so like a month and a half later another email saying that they had the chance to come back and that things were going to be yes so I got that revive the business and so I was like oh okay you found a way that and I didn't think anything of it I wasn't looking out for any like information and I saw this article the other day in Black Ballad that where one of the owners 
got on TikTok and that TikTok is still up. Um, one of the founders is saying, please help us like take our business back from these investors that are changing it and like ruining our business. So I thought, what is going oh, on? Oh my goodness. But however, the writer did an investigation based on the publicly available information, um, you know, in terms of like um, taxes filed and because, you know, when you're a public company, you have to have that information like ready right. available. So what they discovered was that the sisters actually sold their business. And I was so disappointed at the figure. I thought there must have been real desperation here for 40,000 pounds. No, I probably spent 40,000 pounds with them a lot. No, I'm teasing, but that's <laughs> nothing. That's way, that's a fire sale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't, I don't know all of what was involved, but it, the writer also pointed out that in October of last year, when they had a meeting of all of the creditors, that it was revealed that the business owed two million pounds to creditors. So <laughs> I wonder if that was sort of like partly why. So I'm like, you saying investors are changing your business is quite different from Oh, you don't own it anymore, actually. These people own it. And apparently they had uh, brought the sisters back on to do sales and marketing, which for me is, we want you to remain the Black-owned face of this brand. Wow. own it. And so, um, you know, and it was developing all kinds of issues with customer service, right? But, you know, I hadn't experienced any of me that, too. so I can't can't I did that. Okay. You, you experienced customer service issues. Well, just, they were, this was... Um... Reese, you know how they'll have those crazy, ridiculous sales? Yes, yes. 80% off or whatever. Because I know I've gotten silk pants for, you know, 10 pounds, six pounds or something. It's like, why are they giving? And I was like, why are they giving this stuff away? Let me get it while it's, they're giving it away, basically. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, but you and, see, it was an opportunity, but you also questioned like, what's going on here? Yeah, I did. But you know, the other part of me, the greedy, happy part of me, just said, get it while you can. <laughs> Because we have been going through some weird things over the last two years, you know, no, it's true. It's been a it's lot true. of reasons why they have excess inventory, you know, because I, I bought into their, I shouldn't say I bought into, but I was, um, I like their story made sisters made in Africa, you know, that the stuff was cute. And it I, was, yeah. It was, I don't know what. And I, there was something that I ordered a sequin dress or something that I would have never ordered at full price. But again, it was like an 80%. And don't you know, when my package came, <laughs> there was a hole in, and that dress was not in the package. No. And the other thing was in the pack. So I sent them a picture and I said, you know, just to let you know, and it took maybe three, two months before I heard the first um, response. So, you know, I, I let wow. it go because it was, you know, so I could afford to eat it and I didn't, yeah. you know, and I don't know what I expected them to do, but it was more of the thing you want to kind of let people know because you figure they want to know this is how their their package arrived on the other yeah. end. Yeah. To me, the mail is such an amazing thing anyway, that you could put something in a box and it actually gets to the final destination. So that's the first time that I got something that was <laughs> clearly opened but it mm -hmm. was, so I just said, was the dress even in there in the beginning? You know, like when you, packed, <laughs> right. like, I was like, yeah. am I getting things in two orders? Um, 
but you know, because things don't always ship at one time. Yeah. It took like two months for them to get back. And then I said something, it was like another month. I let it go. And I have forgotten about them until you just mentioned it. But I can <laughs> see what happened. No, because I could, that was, I yeah. yeah. So I can see, so, and we don't know, I don't know the circumstances of the brand that I brought this up with who who sold out to the major, major, major European multinational. I don't know if she did it for her health. I don't know if she got a good deal. I don't know if she's still involved with it. But I another reason I asked you that is because I don't know if you think that Black brands like yours have to have partners like that to get that big or to be big. Can I we- don't know. Well, here's the thing. The business of being in business is very tricky. You have to have investment um, or an injection of uh, funds. If Definitely. not, then you're getting it in support from a larger um, uh, um, partner who I know the exact uh, brand that you're talking about who has this multi support from this multi uh, uh, in, multinational conglomerate. Um, because here's where the benefit lies for doing something like that. Those people have buying power when it comes to raw ingredients. When it comes to manufacturing, when it comes to product development and in-house like formulators to develop things for them, um, they also have um, power with distributors um, and retailers. So they have massive shelf space. Massive shelf space and their relationships, their black book, if you will. Um, It's immense. And so that's where the benefit comes from. That is literally tens of millions of pounds, dollars, however you want to slice it in investment. And so that is the power there. Um, We don't know what the stipulations are. So it doesn't mean that she has to change a formula. Like if she was worth her salt and the lawyers that she has to negotiate that contract stipulated that this is how, you know, it must be, then that is. But I understand people, um, I think we're very sensitive as Black people. And because We have a history of being done wrong when it comes to um, uh, businesses and just being done wrong as Black people in general, Mm -hmm. um, that sometimes we can skip over the trust that we had in um, people in our community and go right to things already gone wrong before they can prove themselves that way. And I wish we wouldn't do that. I understand the impetus to do that if we don't like catch and control ourselves. But I think sometimes if you've learned to trust a brand brand that it's worth giving them the benefit of the doubt. And I know the things that they don't trust the multinational, but trust that the black owner isn't Mm -hmm. an idiot. (laughs) And, Mm -hmm. you know, and she was savvy enough to get where she is savvy enough to like get the attention of these uh, people that see it um, as a worthwhile investment. So, you know, give her the opportunity to to see it through and then um, judge. Um, But um, so, so that's my opinion of that and multinationals. The other side of that is that um, I would prefer that a multinational do things that way by partnering and actually giving um, resources and investing in these 
Black-owned brands that have done the hard work of proving themselves, Mm -hmm. because often it is harder for us, right? It's harder to get loans. We're paying more for ingredients or just to get into the rooms in the first place. I would rather them show support in this way and benefit off of it than outright replacing those businesses by just copying off of them and getting the right feel and undercutting their prices on the shelves and stealing their business, which is what they often do. As soon as we prove a value of something and it's in the cultural zeitgeist, then they sort of like come in and just think, well, how can we create that, recreate that or copy it without understanding it fully even. And I see that on some products that are out there now where they're touting on the front of them, oh, contains aloe vera or with shea butter and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, the 18th of I was gonna say know, if you look at the label I know if you if you actually look at the label you know and a lot of the products I think are black that people think are black owned or whatever aren't oh yeah Cantu for instance that is not black owned <laughs> dark and lovely yeah a lot of these uh, a lot of these brands Cantu, okay, I, I want to act like I knew Cantu wasn't I didn't know <laughs> you surprised me with that one really okay. yeah it is it is not and I think a lot of people don't because I think they try to present themselves I don't think African pride is either um that that brand um there are a lot of brands out there with the African this or um, Kentu literally has that Kente cloth looking. I can, say, I can see the um, <laughs> label. Yeah. So yeah, I know there are brands out here that are targeting Black people and they're fronting, you know, they don't, because they want to get, um, they want to get the buy-in and trust of uh, the Black community and Black dollars. Um, but I always just think, well, what is your overall approach to black people because I don't want to be buying from big brands like that that are also out here giving money to conservative parties that whose policies are sort of like you know detrimental to us what are the things you know, we don't do enough <laughs> of that we don't do enough of of that um has okay your prime minister is brown um the first brown one in then ever I guess um, mm-hmm. and I know he's conservative. Has life for brown people improved? No, because <laughs> um, like- <laughs> no, because the I'm sorry, but the kind of brown and black people that are in the conservative party, um, they're not pro their own people overall. They're pro their own people in that class. It's a class thing. That's true. It's, Britain is very, it's very much a class thing. He's, a, yeah. he's very wealthy. His wife is extremely wealthy. And rising through the ranks of this particular conservative party, he will have imbibed a lot of the bullshit from his fellow white conservatives who don't know what it is to have life hard. And he doesn't know either. And so I don't, uh, what is it that um, filmmaker Isaac, um, I'm forgetting his name, um, but he made the film Looking for Langston. I always quote, oh. mis- I, I misquote something he says um, all the time. And it is, it doesn't matter that you're black, insert brown here, 
Mm-hmm. What are your politics? Mm-hmm. Right? That is the follow-up question that we always have to ask mm-hmm. because, um, or as Black folks say, not all kinfolk is kinfolk. And that yeah. applies here to Rishi Sunak. Like, he's not kinfolk to anyone who isn't wealthy. And there are plenty of, um, a fair number of Asian people in this country who are also anti-immigration, though, how the fuck do you think that you got here? You know what I mean? And there are Black people like that too. You'll find them in everywhere. Yeah, they're a, very, they're a smaller um, portion of the overall sort of like um, uh, POC population. Mm-hmm. But I don't care that you're Indian if your policies are anti-Black or they're mm-hmm. like, you know, anti-people like people of color and they're just further entrenching white supremacist like policies. No, I don't like I don't celebrate you as the first black or brown person. Well, you know, I know and that's if he was a, black, I wouldn't celebrate him either. Yeah. Well I know that there are a lot of immigrants here that are in the party that's the most conservative and anti-immigrant party. I shouldn't say a lot, but when you see them as spokespeople, um you know that kind of takes me aback because as yeah. you say, how did you get here? But uh, you know, it's that whole thing of the good immigrant or whatever. Yeah. And I know that there are people that have the discussion, what did Obama ever do for me? Or, you know, and he went to Harvard to lead and, you know, I don't know. Obama's a very different story to me. It's a different story to me as well, um, because he does know what it's like to struggle for one thing, did not come from wealth, um, worked for everything that he got, um, did an incredibly a lot of, I mean, we still, the, the healthcare that we have and they're still fighting for is because you know, Clinton tried it. He's, he's got it over. Yeah. But, but I just wonder, um, there were some people that had real unrealistic expectations too, what an Obama pregnant, uh, pregnancy presidency would mean. Right. Or could. Yeah. Mean. So and I unrealistic don't, expectations. Yeah, definitely. I, I think so. So I just didn't know if they were, if he was hitting his expectations from that community. Sounds like, yes, if his community is the well-to-do, um, yeah, I, I, I do not, I have not been witness to a lot of celebration of him hmm. um, by say like the, the Indian or like Asian community overall, you know, I haven't seen a lot of like, sort of like excusing him because he is brown. I have not been witness like to that. I think I think what some people what has kind of gone like underestimated and I like I don't want this to sound like a conspiracy theory but I think that with Rishi Sunak being in office as finally someone competent enough from that party um who can like allow them allow the conservatives to actually get their um agenda passed unfortunately without the fanfare that um uh, Boris Johnson's Johnson. lies and drama brought yeah. without the misogyny that was brought to um look I'm forgetting her name because right I'm a part of that she was a prime minister for like two weeks um yeah I was gonna say Theresa May but you mean the <laughs> no one, she the was the one woman. before that yeah okay um, yeah I can't mm-hmm her name will come to me uh, shortly. You know, without that- Nicola um, something? Maybe not. No, Nicola Sturgeon was um, in Scotland and she just she resigned. Shows. 
did yeah. she? Okay, I missed yeah, that. She, yeah, she did. Um, Liz Trust. Liz Trust. Oh, was, girl, that uh, made me pay. I don't even think yeah. I understood that. <laughs> okay, no. um, and, and here's the thing, though, because what happens, what often happens with people who are minorities within conservative parties or parties in which they're overwhelmingly white and represent the wealthy upper um, and middle class, because middle class means something so different in this country than it does in the United mm -hmm. States, um, mm -hmm. that uh, when they have like a token or somebody who is uh, in a, a minority or in sort of like a member of an oppressed class, because um, even though women are technically a majority of the population, still in an oppressed class, um, is that they fight extra hard to be taken seriously or to prove themselves among, um, you know, in those circles. And so they're going to go twice as hard. I, I know what you're saying. You know what I mean? Uh -huh. To get the recognition. So they don't even see sometimes that they themselves are working twice as hard yeah. as the white boys in the group yeah. just to make it within that party. Yeah. And I so when exactly. they get there, they think that it's because they're the good ones. They have earned it. They proved themselves. And why can't the rest of you lot do the same thing too? Mm, yeah. Why, do, why can't you pull yourself up by your bootstraps or ignore all that race you know, uh, uh, talk rhetoric, or, they'll call it rhetoric or crying over oppression or whining and just get on with it. Because yeah. if you did, then you could get where I am. Right. Yeah. So even they allow themselves to fool themselves and like overlook the sort of like aggressions that they have experienced and getting there and how much harder they have had to work just so they can be used right yeah. for benefit because the moment you do something or mess up in a way that doesn't benefit their agenda, you are gone. <laughs> <laughs> they have no time for you. They have no so I, time for you. So I wait a minute. Rumors, okay, about a book. I heard rumors yes. that you are you have written a new book. Is this a first book? What kind of book is this? Yes, it is a first book where it's just my thoughts, just me uh, in it. <laughs> is this the PhD anthropologist book, or is this the entrepreneur? book wow I, you know what it's mostly the phd anthropologist book and Fantastic. the last chapter i talk a little bit about what the values from the phd um woman uh how those are infused into the your the uh, entrepreneurian wow. entrepreneurial woman so uh yeah i would say it's a uh, um 8020. <laughs> oh, okay. So what can you tell us the title and when you expect it to be published? Yes, it's called Stories of Black Female Identity in the Making, oh. uh, Queering the Love in Blackness. Oh and my yeah, it is part of an overall Black Studies collection. So there are other titles in the collection from other um, authors, but it is um, a series designed to for um scholars to talk in plainer language <laughs> about uh things uh concerns of blackness using personal um experience and stories as a sort of like jumping off point most academic books only care about 
um, uh, uh, stories as illustrations of like a greater point. And this is the, the flip is the opposite where we're telling the stories and then um, drawing from those stories um, relevant and salient points about how blackness functions, about um, what, it, what does it mean to be a black queer woman? Um, how did that affect um, matters of like immigration or my personal relationship? Um, what did it mean for me personally to discover that I had two white women friends that voted for Trump? And then what did I do after that? And, you know, how I related that to white women's place in supporting and being essential to upholding white supremacy. Girl, right? they would have so, voted, <laughs> voted like they were supposed to vote or how they told us they were going to vote. You know, um, has it affected your employment? You were saying how it affects um, Black queer, female queerness. Could you say how it affects um, other aspects oh, of life? Is yes, that- it didn't affect my, uh, well, it, it eventually affected my uh, employment. And I, uh, I tell the story in the book, but my wife is British, which is why um, I am here. But, and I want people to realize that the laws and the so-called protections that we have in the United States were not always there and they're not guaranteed to be there. Um, I hate to sound like a, a George Bush, Bush um, like uh, appointee, but freedom isn't free. Um, and so the, uh, you know, the ruling that the Supreme Court made in 2015 about uh, marriage equality, that did not exist you know, when I was living in the United States and wanted my wife um, to uh, to emigrate there. So it was not a possibility because that it wasn't law even didn't an exist. option. It, it wasn't even an option. option. And when she was told that she couldn't come back here or she got rejected for um, a, a, a travel visa, um, my whole world kind of blew up and I had to rethink my life. Um, and tell my employer and work something out with my job. I had to leave my job. I had to like sell my condo. I had to, you know, move over here. I decided those things, but I was forced into that position by my government. And it should not have been a position that I was in. So, so, so the laws in Britain were more favorable or did you oh, come yeah, as a couple? Definitely. Um, at the time. Now, those laws, if we want to talk about how I have watched certain things erode in this nation since I arrived in this nation the same year that conservatives, whatever, it was a coalition party, but in all essence, you know, um, it was being run by the conservatives and not the Lib Dems in 2010. So the amount and the downgrade that I've seen in this country since I have moved here, really, truly unfortunate. And it makes me sad. Um, but even still, I would not move back to the United States unless I like absolutely nervous? had to. Okay, it does make me nervous. one thing, but it doesn't make you nervous. Oh yeah, it does make me nervous. I was like, man, we might have to like move to France or the Netherlands or Canada or we, you know, I've been thinking about, you know, what can I do? And I think as a educator. Um, and a holder of a PhD, at least I'm in a position to apply to universities and try to get into another country that way through teaching or perhaps you really my live business. like that? 
do you really live and think like that? Like you need plan B, C, D? Because you listed several countries that <laughs> could possibly be favorable. I mean, I like to plan. If I can figure out the worst case scenario, you can have everything else. But I don't, so you, I don't want to say you're living on eggshells or anxious, but you really do think, okay, things are getting worse. We need to be one step ahead. If we got to bounce, we got to. I have it in the back of my mind. Yeah. It's not like something that I think about every day. But I do, I used, you know, I used to work at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum in education. And so when I think about how the stripping away of life and eventually what became the Holocaust and the war and um, the systematic eradication of not only Jews, but gypsies and political dissidents and, and all of the that. Cabs, whatever Black people were around. Yeah. Right. And yes, intellectuals and. Um, uh, and you fall into um, three of those people. categories. Right. I fall into multiple categories, right? The homosexuals, all of those things. So I think about how, how it started with certain populations and how there was this gradual kind of stripping away over several years. Nobody thought a Holocaust was going to happen, and nobody thought war was necessarily coming again, and not so, and not so quickly. But I, I, I think about that in terms of this is what happens. Like they, you get stripped away little by little, and people get mad. And we, we live in a society where we have so many things to distract us um, from the pain of living, right, and the complexity um, of it all. And there's nothing to say that any of that wouldn't be possible again. My entire career at the Holocaust Museum was all about, this is not an isolated event that is somehow special to that time in history. Literally, this is what mankind does, right? And these were the particular steps and the perfect storm that created that scenario. It doesn't mean that it would happen in the same way again, but looking at themes and signs and how um, fascism sort of like um, seeps its way into society that you have to watch and be wary of those things. So with that kind of background, I do think about the people who got on a um, on a big liner, the St. Louis in 1938, thought they were heading to Havana, Cuba for safety. And those are the people who had money and had means, right? Only to be turned back. And no country would accept them, and uh, except for a couple, uh, a very few, they ended up having to get off, ended up back in Europe. And some of them got to countries that where they thought they were safe, and they got those countries got bulldozed in the war again. They thought they had like you know escaped and, and gotten over it. And I'm just like, think about what it took to with that and to live through this time for those that you know sort of like survive and to watch life changing for you um, all the time and then just because you're so busy living and trying to survive that you don't have time to zoom out and see how the big picture is adding up so it's not a paranoia it is a knowledge of history having a way of repeating itself in certain themes. And we are in an era, which I hope people don't think that it was over because 
Trump or even Boris Johnson or, um, you know, mm. Le Pen was defeated in France or mm. Bolsonaro. You know, when the next time you know, the way they rejected Macron's policy, Trump this, has a damn good chance. That's what I'm saying, that just because you got away then doesn't yeah. mean that authoritarianism is very much spreading throughout the world. And we are going through an era where we are confronting these things and their effects. So, of course, I'm thinking in the back of my mind, anything could happen with this spread that is going on in the world. And will I make it out of this? Or, you know, you know, are we going to have to uproot our lives? I don't know. But I just know, I just have the, the, the hindsight of history, knowing that, well, I have, I might have to do something drastic. I say, you know, enough to know that it's could happen. It's happened before. Yeah. And you have the wherewithal at least to not have your head in the sand and be shocked. I mean, you're, you, you know what I mean? You're aware. Yeah. Now this book, does it cover any, any of those? Um, how can I say really life and death things that black queer people have to go through? That's not the, or have, because you say you talk from firsthand experience, have you had any life or death for re, no, so I, I am not coming from that perspective and it's okay. not that uh, kind of a book, right? It's not, uh, it's not trauma. <laughs> uh, it's not a trauma-based uh, okay. um, book, right? So that's not the experience that I'm necessarily um, sharing. I do talk about the experience of confronting and recognizing queerness within yourself and then looking back at uh, parts of your life that you're questioning in different ways and how I define the term queer from bisexuality, um, the differences that I, I see in them. I also talk um, in several chapters in the book about the damage and the way that Christianity negatively impacted my sense of self and um, my ideas around shame and sex and my body and what it took to like undo that. Um, so, uh, and I talk about being an immigrant, you know, as a, as a child coming to um, America and understanding the first place I began to understand that I was black and trying to understand what it meant to that, be black yeah. from both the expectations of the black Americans that I was surrounded by and going to school with, but mm -hmm. also a kind of larger white world and how they interpreted blackness and saw me. Mm -hmm. All of this while at the same time, very much going to home every day to a place that was very much steeped in Jamaican culture. And sometimes, I don't wanna say hostile to um, American culture, but wary of bringing in too much of that. Into yeah, you didn't want to bring that, that across your door. Is this yeah. with Birmingham University Press? Is this a university press? It's not by university. It's not by them. It's um, a place called Lived Places Publishing, which is a, a publisher uh, in the in the U.S. Um, and they have several different like series. So they have like a, a series on. Uh, gender, um, race, um, black studies. This one is under black studies, but it cuts across the gender as well as queer studies one. So it's a very intersectional mm -hmm. approach. Um, 
to these uh, um, to these stories. And of course, you know, I, I talk about white supremacy mostly from um, how uh, white women are essential pieces to upholding that, um, and that we have to be within feminism. We have to be very sort of like um, careful about how we um, identify with feminism and that and how white women have to recognize their power there even as they're sort of like you know oppressed and the story I tell about um, one particular now ex-friend of mine you know after the whole Trump debacle Mm -hmm. um, I use it to illustrate like here's a specific damage that she's doing in her mixed race family with this Um, and 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 sort of zooming out from there and the damage that it does to society. So is a book tour coming up? Is that why you missed that <laughs> two-day festival? <laughs> uh, well, I um, so I'm not going on a book tour because this is mostly a kind of academic publisher. So there's no book tour with them. I hope for my next book, which I hope to be a um, a work of fiction, um, perhaps taking some of the stories that I had to cut and couldn't tell and get into this book turn that into something bigger. Um, so do like to write fiction as well, that that will be a thing. Oh, the baby's fun. The fur baby's fun. Yeah, I'm no. They're adorable. Well, be quiet. They're adorbs. No, um, I think I saw two. I think I saw two. Yes, I have two. I love them. I'm very obsessed with them. I'm like, uh, I have their image on everything. The black and white one's gone, but I can, uh, she was. Yeah, she's the one that's barking. Aha, okay. She she sounds much bigger than she actually is. Like, I have them. (laughs) Oh, you're one of them. Okay. Oh, those are really your friends. I'm an obsessed dog. Um, Yeah, but. Oh, no, right. So I am uh, been talking to somebody who does like PR and events. So I want to host uh, a chat at my university with me and being interviewed by someone about the book. The book comes out on the 22nd of June and yes. it can be pre-ordered or ordered on Amazon or if you're a more ethical person, other bookstores um, out there. Make sure I have the link. <laughs> that will add it okay it could be pre-order no because sure. it sounds like you say it's not your typical academic book it sounds like this it's would not take, yeah it could be taken around to different university settings or you know these yeah I would museums perhaps you know yes. they have um as not everybody has a national museum of african-american history or culture though but different museums that talk about cultural things but an intersectionality it sounds fascinating actually Oh. I'm I'm really proud of it. I really liked it when I had to read it back. Um, and I was, you know, editing it before, you know, the second edit before sending it off to the publisher. I thought, oh, yeah, I, I like this book. Yeah, it's pretty good. <laughs> did you make your? Did you ask your wife to read it? Do you involve her in processes like that, or you? Um, is it I too do. sensitive? Well, no, it's not like that. So, um, you know, what's funny is that I started writing the book last year when I was in France. Part. Um, grading holiday part actual holiday and I'm doing the same thing again this year which is why I'm going to miss that festival Um, but I started writing by hand in a notebook because it's easier for me to sort of I don't know be in touch with my interior self when Mm -hmm. I do that Mm -hmm. and I tell you this because I asked her to please type up those Mm -hmm. words as I 
started writing more directly on the um, computer once we were back and I was sort of in the zone already. So she typed up a lot of the early sort of like stories and made a, a whole like little key for like where there were words she didn't understand and where she made guesses and, you know, things like that. And then I also um, had her read the chapter where I wrote about our relationship and how we met to make sure she was comfortable with it. And there wasn't anything that she objected to before I included it in the book. But yeah, she, she has, she has read it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> she no, and my that's... therapist are the only people that have read it. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause book writing can be solitary. It can be very low. Yeah. And, yeah, uh, definitely. Yeah. She reads she... everything I write eventually because I always ask for her. I, I always ask her um, to look over it to see um, where I've like made any mistakes. Cause sometimes my, um, my head goes faster than my fingers can. And occasionally I'll like leave out words or forget to change, um, you know, not to is, and it'll change the whole mm-hmm. meaning. So she'll query things and say, did you mean to use this word or might this be better? Mm-hmm. So her pedant skills come in handy sometimes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. Yeah. She gave up the garage to make it your studio. and. <laughs> She's made a lot of sacrifices. Yeah, yeah. she's a cool editor. Well, I have—I just feel my cup feels full after talking with you and oh, hearing all these wonderful mine. things. Um, congratulations on the book and the nine up to nine product lines. Thank you. How you're expanding your wholesale in different countries. Um, we're just thrilled for you. Angela sends her best. I tell you, her internet. Um, but we're thrilled for you. Thank you. I'm thankful for you guys too. Thank you so much for like being in touch with me and offering to talk to me on your podcast. It's been really nice. I don't get to have these kinds of conversations like that often. So it's great. Yeah, we were in the fluff. We covered a lot of stuff. I feel like we, we covered did. a lot of territory. <laughs> I appreciate that. I appreciate you and um, have the, a great rest of your, your week. Thank you. You too. And tell Angela said hi. I will. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, Adrian.